If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn with me to the Old Testament book of Job. We'll be looking at Job chapter 39, in particular verses 13 through 18, although we'll really be moving around Job quite a bit. Children, if you grabbed one of those children's Bibles we keep in the vestibule, those red and white ones, our text today is on page 657. So if you have one of those children's Bibles, 657 for you. If you brought your own Bible, I can only guess, but probably towards the middle. Job is one of those books that's difficult to jump into at a random place and begin preaching. It's a really long poetic discourse uh, between Job and his friends and with God. And so there is some difficulty in picking a narrow text from Job and, and speaking to it. I'll show my hand. I'm unashamed to admit this. Uh, about a month ago or so, uh, I met with a couple of the young men from the church, a few of our high school students whom I meet with regularly. And I said to them, well, I'm preaching on July the 16th, and I have a few texts that I'm interested in. And here they are, one, two, three, four. And I said, you guys get together read them, pray about it, and tell me what you think. And so they came back in unity, in one voice, and said, we've never heard a sermon about ostriches before. (laughs) And so this uh, was that selection, and I am so excited to share from God's Word with you this morning about what He has been teaching uh, Job and me, and will be teaching us as well from this passage. So I'm going to read the entirety of chapter 39, because it's relevant. In fact, I'll start in chapter 38, verse 39, and then we will dive in together. This is the Word of God, so please take heed how you listen to it. God speaking to Job, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered from their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey to whom I have given the arid plain for its home? and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain... Yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom. 
and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valleys and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear, and the javelin. With fierceness and rage he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunders of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagles mount up and makes his nest on high? On the rocks he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from afar. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Well, the USS Harper's Ferry is the lead class of the LSD class of ships. Excuse me, it's the lead ship in the LSD class of ships in the U.S. Navy's fleet. The Harper's Ferry has a length of 661 feet. A draft, which means how low it is below the water, of 20 feet. 20 feet of the boat is below the water. It has a beam of 84 feet. She carries a crew of 419 sailors and a contingent of up to 504 Marines. It's essentially a floating city. Now, I spent several months on the USS Harper's Ferry in 2010 floating around the Pacific and Indian Oceans. On a clear day, standing on the flight deck of the ship, you can look in any direction and see unobscured about 11 miles. Which means, standing like this, on the bow of the ship, you can turn 180 degrees and see about 22 miles from side to side of unobstructed ocean and nothing else. It's a lot of water. I have never felt so small and helpless in my life as being aboard that ship in the middle of the ocean. Never before had I realized, as I did on that ship, how insignificant we are. The ocean is intimidating. Some days, the waves were so bad that the flight deck, which sits nearly 50 feet above sea level, would be crashed over by waves. When we would go to sleep at night, we would fasten three seat belts, one across our chest and one across our waist and one across our knees to keep from rolling out of the rack as the ship pitched left to right in the waves. On other days, the water was so calm it looked like glass, not a ripple as far as the eye could see. That was almost more frightening. The ocean's intimidating. 
It provides us a healthy sense of self. Not fear, necessarily, but awareness. Awareness of the ocean's immensity, its depth, its breadth, and its power, and of our total inability to master it. Total inability. Perhaps you've experienced something like this before. Maybe not on ship or on on the sea, but in some other way, you've become acutely aware of just how small and helpless you really are. Thinking that we're the captains of our soul and the masters of our own destiny, you're brought to your knees in some awe-inspiring situation where you're reminded of your finitude. King David had this experience once. We can imagine him walking around on the roof of his home late one night and looking up at the stars. And after considering the depths of the cosmos, he declares in Psalm 8, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? David, after contemplating the depths of outer space, came to a greater understanding of himself, of his insignificance in light of God's grandeur, in light of the universe's expanse. He recognized that he was a veritable grain of sand in the ocean of God's creation. I believe John Calvin was thinking along these lines when he says at the introduction to his institutes, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself, in other words, a right thinking about self, unless he has first looked upon God and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. I can only really know who I am, in other words, and you can only really know who you are, not in light of the mirror, not in light of your achievements, and not in light of your circumstances, but in light of God. All thinking begins with God. And this is the sort of perspective that God is bringing to Job in our text this morning. He's reminding Job of how small he is. And maybe more accurately, he's reminding Job of how big God is. That's the reminder he really needs. Job is coming to an awareness of how small he is. God is really interested in showing him how big he is. And so the question I want each of you to be asking this morning is this. In what areas of my life, what circumstances, what trials, what difficulties, what diagnoses, what conflict, what job, what fill in the blank, where in your life do you need to be reminded of God's size? Where in your life do you need to be reminded of God's size, that he is in control, and that he rules over all things in holiness, wisdom, and power? That's what our text shows us this morning. I want us to see three things uh, from Job this morning. Number one, God is powerful over all things. Number two, God is wise over seemingly foolish things. Number three, God is good to undeserving things, undeserving people. Well, God is powerful over all things. This requires a little bit of background. I don't presume that everyone here is familiar with the book of Job. Perhaps you are, and this will be a helpful refresher. 
Uh, But in the first two chapters of Job, if we were to turn back to the beginning, we encounter a sort of divine scene where God and Satan interact. It tells us that uh, Satan comes into the throne room of God, and God draws his attention to Job. God's the one that initiates this suffering that Job experiences, by the way. And God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Verse 8 of chapter 1, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless man and upright who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan, uh, in a sort of uh, mockery of Job's faithfulness, says, yeah, but he does that because you protect him. You've blessed him and given him a whole bunch of goodness. Of course he's faithful to you. Of course he obeys you. And so God says, go on then, stretch out your hand against all of his possessions, only leave him alone. You can take all of his stuff. And so in one fell swoop, in the matter of a day, Job loses his family, his money, his livestock, his homes, his possessions. And then the next day, Satan goes back and God says, did you notice that Job blessed me at the end of the day yesterday? And Satan said, well, yeah, because he's fine, so a man can lose all his stuff, but so long as he's okay, because most of us are so self-centered that everything around us can fall apart, but so long as we're okay, we're okay. And God says, go on then, touch him, just don't kill him. And so Satan does. And Job ends chapter 2 the same way, blessing God. Now, there's an important lesson in this, which is kind of adjacent to our text this morning, but I do think it's important for us to think about. This is relevant every day of our lives. Satan is limited by God. He says, behold, all that he has in your, is in your hand, only don't stretch out your hand against him. Uh, and in chapter 2, he says the same things. Behold, verse 6, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Satan is limited by God's sovereignty. He is ruled over by God, he was created by God, and he is bound by the leash that God puts him on. Not to be too flippant about this, but consider for a moment, Satan has far more in common with us than he does with God. We're created beings, and so is he. If we were to categorize all things in existence, there would be two categories. God, over here by himself, and everything else. And in that everything else is Satan, you, me, giraffes, ostriches, mice, cockroaches, dirt. Satan's in that category, not this category. There is not some cosmic tug of war going on between two equally endowed opponents, and God gets a lead over here, and the rope kind of moves over on his side, and then Satan pulls back, and the rope kind of comes over on this side, and we really see that at the cross. No, no, no. In Acts chapter 4, the disciples pray, and they praise God that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, seemingly the most evil and wicked event in the, in the whole of human history, happened according to God's plan to do whatever your will had predestined to take place, they say. Satan is under authority. God is in a class by himself. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism question 11 asking about providence tells us that God's providence means that he rules, he governs, and preserves all his creatures, including Satan, and all their actions, including Satan's. 
And he does so in holiness, wisdom, and power. Holiness meaning that it's never wrong. It's always right what God does. Wisdom meaning it's never foolish. It's always the best. And in power meaning God is never impotent to affect the outcome of any and every situation. And that's important for us to remember because when we end up in a bad way, when we suffer, when our circumstances don't go well, when people around us are acting evil, when our own hearts are being hard, we need to remember that we're not alone in this and that God has not lost control of his universe. We see little devils everywhere running around doing evil deeds, sort of tripping us up. But God is in control and has always been and will forever be. That's important for us to remember. Well, Job loses everything but his life and his wife. And she turns out to be no help at all. Now, hold on a second. I, you know, I think there's some characters in the Bible that get a bad rap. Doubting Thomas, for one. Poor Doubting Thomas. What a terrible nomenclature to be, or handle to be stuck with for all eternity. Uh, Doubting Thomas is, don't forget, he's the one that says to Jesus in John chapter 11, let's go down there to Judea, and if you die, we'll die with you, Jesus. I mean, he could have been rightly called brave Thomas, courageous Thomas, committed and loyal Thomas. He gets a bad rap. Job's wife, I think, gets a bad rap. Put yourself in her shoes for a moment. Everything your husband has has been taken from him. He's covered head to toe in boils. He's scraping himself with a broken pot. He's covered in ashes. And the only thing he has left is his life. And she says, ease your pain. I'm not so sure that it was the worst response in human history. But she proves to be no help to him, as she suggests he just end his life and be done with it all. Job's friends are equally helpless Uh, The only thing that they do that's worth anything is remain silent for a week. Uh, In Job chapter 2, it says that they see Job from afar and realize the condition he's in. They weep and they tear their robes and sprinkle dust on their heads. And they sat on the ground with him seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word. A good reminder to us all that sometimes the best way we can counsel our friends in trouble is just to be there and say nothing. Job's friends are full of foolish counsel. And so here in chapters 3 through 37, Job and his friends go back and forth in this sort of poetic uh, debate about Job's innocence. And his friends effectively say that if he was really innocent, he wouldn't be suffering. That the reason Job has lost everything is because he's done something wrong and he needs to amend his ways, walk uprightly, and God will restore blessing to him. And Job says, no, 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 I haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing I've done to elicit this sort of treatment from God. I'm innocent, I maintain my innocence, and I wish that I could say it to God's face. If I could just speak with him, I would remind him, I would show him and tell him that this isn't fair, and I don't deserve this. He asks for a chance to plead his case before God and laments that he cannot... But he recognizes the sinful inclinations of his heart, doesn't he? In chapter 9, which is a key chapter in Job, by the way. In chapter 9, Job says, Even if I were right, my own mouth would condemn me. Even though I'm blameless, God would prove me perverse. He knows that even though he may not have done something specific now to cause this suffering that he's experiencing, he's still a sinner. He still can't stand before the Lord without an advocate he still can't go before god's court and declare himself totally innocent and he knows that 
In fact, Job chapter 9, verse 34, is one of the most underrated, underappreciated verses in all of Scripture. Job is asking here for this uh, character to show up, this advocate, this arbiter that he needs in order to plead his case before God. And listen to chapter 9, verse 33. Job says, There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Do you know what Job is asking for in Job 9, 33? He's asking for the incarnation. He's saying that I need someone who can put his hand on me and represent me without crushing me. I need a man who is also able to lay his hand on God without being destroyed by him. I need a God. In other words, I need a God who becomes man. Job is pleading for the incarnation in chapter 9. Don't miss that. And that's what he wants, and that's what he needs. Indeed, that's what we all need, is one who can stand between us and God and not plead our innocence, but plead his own innocence. In Job chapter 4, verse 7, one of Job's friends, Eliphaz, he makes a statement, when has an innocent person ever suffered? That's his theology. His logic is, do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. That's his logic. Effectively, he's saying, if you're suffering, it's because you're sinning. And if you would do well, then no bad things would happen to you. Never before has an innocent person suffered. He says, I've observed the way of things. And I can tell you, Job, that if you're suffering, it's because you're not innocent. Eliphaz, in his foolishness, speaks better than he knows. Because when he says, when has an innocent person ever suffered? Or has an innocent person ever suffered? The answer is, Only once, only once has an innocent person ever suffered. You and I, we're not innocent, my friends. You might be innocent of certain things. You might not be guilty of specific crimes or specific things, but we are not innocent people. It doesn't take a lot of time or deep meditation or imagination to consider all the ways in which we've broken God's law all of the ways in which we violated his holiness, in the ways in which we violated each other, the ways in which we've sinned against God and man. Our sinfulness is piled up as high as the sky. None of us are innocent. And so when we suffer, it might not be because of a specific sin, but it's because of sin. And none of us are innocent. Only one person has ever been innocent. And he suffered your suffering on the cross. Jesus was truly innocent. He had, there was no deceit in his mouth, and he told no lies. He had done nothing wrong, and yet he was accounted as one of the wicked ones for our sake. And the Lord laid on him, Isaiah says, the iniquity of us all. Job thinks he's innocent, and he wants to speak to God, and so God finally shows up in chapter 38. And when God shows up, Job learns a number of lessons. One, and I think that I remember my parents saying this when I was young, be careful what you ask for. God shows up and barrages Job with a series of unanswerable questions concerning creation, concerning the animal world. And Job is unable to answer any of them. What God's really doing is he's showing Job how little he actually knows. He asks in chapter 38, he says, were you there when I set the foundations of the world? Tell me, who determined its measurements? 
I'm sure you know Job. You're so wise and full of knowledge. Uh, Were you there when the morning stars sang for joy at my creation? Do you shut in the sea with doors? Do you prescribe limits for it? Have you commanded the morning? Do you tell the sun when to rise and when to set? Do you cause the dawn to know its place? Do you enter the springs of the seas or do you walk in the depths of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you and do you understand them? Do you comprehend the expanse of the earth? Tell me, where does light come from and where does darkness come from? Do you make its territory that you may discern its paths? You must know because you were around and the number of your days is very great. Do you know where the snow comes from? Have you seen where the hail is, where the water is, where the rain comes from? He asks Job this nonstop series of questions, basically reminding Job of how small he is. This is Job's moment on the flight deck, looking out across the horizon of the ocean. And instead of seeing 22 miles of ocean, he sees an entire universe of God's power. And he's reminded how small he really is. He's reminded how big God truly is. Job has been confusing the issues because his knowledge is limited. And this is the problem that most of us have in times of difficulty and suffering. We ask the wrong questions. Job and his friends have been debating back and forth Job's innocence. And God, when he shows up, makes no mention of Job's innocence. He changes the subject. We think in the midst of difficulty, consider your own life, in the midst of trials, in the midst of stress and strain and loss and grief, we consider us. We ask questions about ourselves. What have I done wrong? Why is this happening to me? What can I do to fix this? Woe is me. The whole world is against me. This person is hurting me. That person is an enemy of mine. And all of our questions and the subject of our contemplation is ourselves. And God shows up and doesn't give that a second thought He doesn't whisper to Job, you know what, Job, actually, you're suffering because of your faithfulness. Wouldn't that have been nice for Job to hear? Wouldn't that have been nice for him to know? The reason you're suffering, my son, is because you're so faithful and I know you're going to be okay. Wouldn't you like to hear that in the midst of suffering? The reason you're enduring this trial right now with your spouse, with your children, with your job, with your health, with your fill in the blank is because I know you can take it because you're so precious to me and because your faith is so great. He doesn't say any of that to Job because it's the wrong answer to a bad question. God changes the subject and says, Job, don't consider you, consider me. I made everything. I tell every drop of rain where it should go. Every flake of snow from the history of the world, each one unique and different, I made them and caused them to fall where they land. I tell the sea when to wave, and I tell the storm when to crash, and I tell the lightning when to thunder, and I tell the goats when to give birth, and I give food to the little baby ravens, and I feed young lions, and I give glory to all of my majestic creatures. Who do you think you are to ask me? I'm running my universe well. You don't know a fraction of it. You weren't there 
when I made it. You can't even understand the stupid ostrich, and yet you think that you should plead your case before me. My friends, our biggest problem in suffering is that we're asking the wrong questions about the wrong subject. We become very self-centered in moments of difficulty, don't we? Let's just admit it. When trials come our way, we're filled with fear, anxiety, bitterness, grumbling, resentment, complaining. And the reason we are is because we think of ourselves and our circumstances as the center of God's universe. God thinks of himself and his majesty and his glory as the center of our universe. And when we align those things together, it's amazing how we're able to endure trials of various kinds and consider it all joy and rejoice always because we know who it is who has power over everything. God comes to Job and he shifts his attention. There's an illustration of this in scripture. You remember in Joshua chapter 5 when Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army and he says to him after falling on his face at his feet, he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And the commander of the Lord's army says, no. It's one of those answers that only the commander of the Lord's army can give without it being sarcastic. He says, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. In other words, what he says to Joshua is, son, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, am I for you or for them? The question is, are you for me? I'm with the Lord. Who are you with? And when we experience suffering, that's the way we need to approach God. The question is not, why is this happening to me? What have I done? Where is my my escape from this the question is is god still in control and do i trust him indeed he is and indeed we rarely do but he gives us reason to in scripture doesn't he in job he gives us reason to trust him in the foolishness of the ostrich he draws job's attention to this seemingly dumb animal In the midst of God's great display of majesty and power, stars, moon, creation of the earth, lightning, thunder, rain, hail, lions, wild horses, wild oxen, ravens, hawks, eagles, ostrich. And you kind of wonder, why would he use that as his central character in this kind of tour of the local zoo that he takes Job on? Why the ostrich? What do we know about the ostrich? The ostrich is a bird that can't fly. I mean, right off the bat, it violates its own definition. Uh, It's a bird that can't fly. Big, puffy wings, really beautiful feathers. And uh, it says here, the wings of the ostrich wave proudly. It runs around flapping its giant wings and doing nothing with them because it can't fly. What else does the ostrich do? It leaves its young, its eggs on the earth and lets them be warmed by the ground. 
It doesn't even have what we would refer to as motherly instincts. It doesn't nest on top of its eggs to keep them warm. It drops them on the ground and leaves. It allows them to be trampled underfoot by wild animals, even by the ostrich itself, because God has caused it to forget wisdom and given it no share in understanding. When wild horses with warriors riding on top of them come into view of the ostrich, it laughs. It doesn't even care. It has no fear of danger. Ostriches stick their head in the sand in order to protect themselves from things that are dangerous. Their head. Their brain is smaller than their eyeball. And God uses this as an example of why Job should trust him. That's interesting. What else does the Bible teach us about the ostrich? So we can't be guilty now of interpreting the ostrich as foolish based on our observation of it. We have to interpret the ostrich according to God's design and his thoughts about it. So let's just do a quick survey. The Bible tells us in Genesis uh, chapter 1 that after God had made all of the creatures, he declared it good. So according to God, the ostrich is good. Then in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of heaven, The angels singing back and forth antiphonally to one another say, the whole earth is full of God's glory. In other words, all creatures that on earth do dwell sing to the Lord with cheerful voice, his praise foretell. All creatures that God has made declare his glory, which means that the Bible says, according to God's interpretation of the ostrich, that it's good and that it's glorious. Exodus chapter 15, after the Israelites cross the Red Sea, they sing Miriam's song of praise, and they declare that he is a God who works wonders, or who is, or in other words, it says that all of his works are wondrous. So surveying scripture, the ostrich is good, brings glory to God, and is wondrous. We observe it with our finite minds and our limited experience and call it foolish and the point god is making in drawing job's attention to the ostrich and listen now here as you think about your life about your difficulties about your circumstances about your trials listen to what god says through the ostrich if you think one of my good glorious and majestic creations is stupid And you don't have the categories to interpret my sovereign rule over the universe. You darken counsel without knowledge, is what he says in chapter 38, verse 2. You're asking questions that you can't comprehend. The ostrich brings glory to God, and we mock it. How do we think we have the ability to approach God and question his sovereign operation of our lives when we experience trials? We just don't know. We just don't have categories, do we? And God is encouraging you as he encourages Job through this discourse to remember that what you think is foolish, I call wise. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Were you there when he set the foundations of the earth? Then why do we ask him why it works the way it does? 
Were you there? Do you know the way to the storehouses of rain? Then why do we lament God's inability to care for his creation well? Or act like he can't? Do you understand the ostrich in all of its majesty and glory? As seemingly foolish as it is? And where do we think we have the authority or the ability to question God's sovereign and providential care of us? And we're far more valuable to him than any creature he's made. If not a bird falls from the sky without his command, and we're of much more value than birds, how can we fail to trust him that he will not provide for us in every way that we need? That he will not love us according to his steadfast love and kindness. Now I must say that as I I was thinking about the ostrich this week, uh, probably more than I've ever thought about an ostrich before, and it dawned on me how hypocritical we are. Perhaps I'm alone on this. We read this text and the, the, the main emphasis of the ostrich's foolishness is in its neglect for its children. That's the main emphasis. Of course, it's a bird that can't fly. Of course, it laughs at the horse and its rider. Of course, it has no wisdom. But the center of this part of our text emphasizes that it leaves its young on the ground, forgetting that they may be trampled underfoot. It deals cruelly with its young as if they were not hers. And we mock that the ostrich is a bad parent. The ostrich leaves her young to be trampled upon. And yet how many of us neglect the soul care of our children? Parents, as you think about the eternal souls of your children, that young baby that we baptized 30 minutes ago, Iris, she will live forever. Your children, you young children who are here, will live forever. The eternal souls of our children. We mock the ostrich for neglecting her eggs on the ground. And yet how guilty are we of neglecting the soul care of our children? We care about their bodies, about their brains, and about their bank accounts. And we turn them over to a world that hates God and denies his existence to fill their bodies and their minds and their bank accounts. And we act like if only we could get them those things, then they'll have happy and good lives. My friends, we are ostriches when it comes to our young far too often. We turn them over to a world that denies the existence of a creator and expect them to come back to us with a Christian worldview. We fill their minds with foolish things on television and movies and in books and so forth and allow them to be discipled by evil and wicked people who would teach them to deny the truth of God and his word and what his intention is for them. We encourage and prod and push and drive our children into the workforce, into education, and those things are fine and great and necessary, but we never, ever pressure them to come to church. We don't want them to resent us for making them come to Sunday school or do things in the church that will help them grow in Christ and get to know the Lord better and be educated with a Christian world and life view. We want them to go to the best secular colleges so they can be good engineers and we don't care if they have a theological foundation enough to equip them to have an apologetic to protect them from the world's wicked influences. How stupid are we? Not the ostrich. Ostrich. 
and we stick our head in the sand and we say, well, the Lord loves them and he'll protect them even though I've done nothing to equip them for the dangers that are out there. It's challenging, isn't it? It's challenging. Do we care for the souls of our young? If the ostrich teaches us nothing, it teaches us that God's foolishness is wiser than our wisdom. What appears to be a relatively unintelligent and flightless bird has been endowed by God with speed and strength. What appears to be a helpless and hapless creature is actually free, cared for by God, running and laughing at calamity and danger. And God shows that he's in control as he provides for it and for its young. It lays its young on the ground, and yet the ostrich is not extinct because God protects what's his, and he remains in control. Well, the last thing that we'll say as we draw this to a close God is not only powerful over all things and wise over foolish things, but he's good to undeserving things. Job doesn't deserve a response from God, and yet God shows up to him, doesn't he? God appears in the whirlwind and speaks to Job and gives him the greatest answer to life's most important question. Not why me, but who are you? Not why me, but who is God? And he explains to Job who he is and what he's done. He tells us of his providential care for all the hosts of his creatures, even the ostrich. He hunts for the young lion, provides food for the raven. He's even there tenderly caring for the wild animals when they give birth. He cares and provides for them by giving rain and sunlight. How much more does he care for us? Even leaving Job with some sense of an answer and a sense of closure on this situation that he's been in by speaking to him. And Job responds the right way in Job chapter 42. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. In other words, I questioned your ability to run your universe and I now realize that I don't know a fraction of what your universe is all about. I've heard of you by hearing, now my eye sees you. And then in verse 6, let me make a brief explanation here. It says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, the word repent there, it's rightly translated repent, but based on the fact that God has not actually told Job that he sinned in his uh, response, but instead that he was foolish, I think, and there's agreement here among scholars that when Job says, I repent, what he actually means is, I am comforted. You may have a footnote in your Bible that says, therefore I am comforted. So I want to read that again using the word comforted, and I want us to think for just a moment about what he's saying. He says, I despise myself or my actions towards you, God, and I am comforted in dust and ashes. That's weird. Uh, I'm comforted in a warm, cozy bed with a quilt. I'm comforted in air conditioning. I'm comforted with a nice, cool glass of water. Not dust and ashes. Job says, I am comforted because of who you are in my trial. The fact that I'm in a trial means that you're in control. I can experience anything on this earth and be comforted in the knowledge that you are God. I don't need my trial to end to be comforted. I'm comforted in my trial, 
in the dust and ashes because of who you are, not because of the fact that things are better for me. Can you say that? Can you say that to God? Can you say in the middle of the most difficult season of your life, broken relationships, failed expectations, your own sin, others' sin towards you, sickness, loss, grief, death, fear, unknown, that you are comforted in that because of God, because of who He is. That's what God wants us to be able to do. That's what He's telling Job. That's why he's showing Job who he is. So that way when you and I suffer, we can be comforted in suffering because we ask the right questions and we face the right direction and we know who's in control, who's wise, who's holy, and who's powerful over all these things. And we can do so because of Jesus. Of course, Jesus is the innocent one who suffered. This is an interesting exercise, um, and I think Derek Kidner's the one that, that uh, came up with this, and I'll close with this. Ask the questions, or reframe the questions that God asks Job to Jesus. This is who your Savior is. Were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? Jesus says, Yeah. I was. Who determines its measurements? He says, I do. Who laid its cornerstone? He said, I did. Who shuts in the seas with doors? He says, I do. Who prescribes limits for the oceans? Jesus says, that's me. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Jesus says, I have. Have you entered the springs of the sea and walked in the recesses of the deep? And he goes, oh, I've been to those places. Do you comprehend the expanse of the earth? And he says, I do. Do you know the way to the dwelling place of light and the place of darkness? He says, actually, I do. I commanded them to exist. Do you know where the storehouses of snow are? He goes, oh, yes, I'm the one that commands it to fall. Do you cleft the channel for the torrents of rain? He says, I do. I send each drop where I want it to go. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades and loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in its season and guide the bear with its children? He goes, I can do all that. I named each star and put them in place with my mighty hand. Do you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of water may cover you? Do you send forth lightnings? He goes, I not only do that, I tell it to stop. I provide for the lion. I'm there with the mountain goats when they give birth. I let the wild donkey go free, and I ride on the young colt. Every animal serves me. I design the ostrich. I give the horse its might. It's by me that the hawk soars. It's by my word that the eagle mounts up. It's through me that you live and move and have your being. It's according to my word that the universe is sustained. It's by my work on the cross that you can be forgiven. I was there. I'll answer for you. I'll be the the arbiter between you and God. I'll stand in the place where I put my hand on him and I put my hand on you and I declare you innocent because of what I've done. When God asks Jesus these questions, he doesn't shrink back like Job and cover his mouth and say, I'm, I'm foolish and I shouldn't have spoken. He goes, oh no, I know all those things and I command them all and I stand in your place. 
that you can stand before God. That's good news. It's good news that Jesus can answer all of these affirmatively. And he loves you. And he says to everyone here, not to the righteous, not to the wise, not to the one with understanding, but everyone, come to me and I'll give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We love your son, Jesus Christ. Would you help us to think good thoughts of him and magnificent thoughts of you? Help us in our trials, especially, Lord, to remember who you are and how good you are to us. In Jesus' name, amen.